gardeners, farmers, compost enthusiasts, and growers. Welcome to The Healthy Garden, the show where soil is important and growing a healthier world is job one. Hello, diggers of dirt and growers of food. Welcome to episode number 38 of The Healthy Garden podcast, Feed That Food. You might think to yourself or ask yourself, what does that mean? It means just what it says. If you are a healthy gardener who has a recession garden, new victory garden, or Orwellian garden, or just straight up clean, safe, true organic, and non-GMO healthy garden going in your yard, someone else's yard, a community garden plot, or on your farm, then you need to feed it. And I figured right now, as we roll into the tougher months of summer, and how and when we feed during the heat and stress of summer is critical to positive food production. Where we live, it's going to top out at 90 today, which isn't terrible, but it isn't too cool. Like Jimmy said, well, sang, and that ain't too cool. I checked the rat traps and watered early this morning to get a jump on the heat and give the plants and trees a fighting chance in the battle against transpiration. As I always warn, it's not about the air temperature. The soil temperature can be as much as 10 degrees warmer than the air on hot days. I try to get the soil wet and cool to let my plants absorb the moisture that they will need to survive on a hot day. And more importantly, Give those microbes a fighting chance. Once we hit 85 degrees, heat stress becomes a reality for your garden, and plants will reach their thermal death threshold at 115. Water becomes a huge issue, not only for your plants, but as I said, also for the biology in your soil. It's no coincidence that trees and shrubs enjoy the optimum growing conditions when the temps are between 60 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which is exactly the optimum temperature for microbial growth and microbial development. When the temperature gets over 85 and into the 90s and then the 100s, the heat can injure plants directly by causing hot tissue temperatures or indirectly by creating plant water deficits that arise due to high transpiration demands. Transpiration, we barely ever talk about that, so what is it? It's the evaporation of water from the leaf surface. It's the way that plants cool themselves. Big mature trees can lose several hundred gallons of water through transpiration on hot days. On the hottest days, about 90% of the water that gets to the plant's roots is used for cooling itself down. No water, no uptake. No plant life or health. The amount of water lost by a plant depends on its size, the temperature, and the wind speed, which are all big influencers on evaporation. Bottom line, let's water, which reminds me about water and food. People have actually answered me in a class when I've asked them, what do you feed your plants? And they answer, water. And what do I reply? Not a food. So let's get into feeding the food that's going to feed us.
Hey there, healthy gardeners. Compost, true organic compost is the elixir of life when it comes to your garden. Booze Blend Compost from Malibu Compost is farm-made, true organic, biodynamic, and non-GMO. It's 100% finished compost that is clean and safe to use in your healthy garden. And a little goes a long way when you're top dressing those beds. So stop by your local independent nursery and pick up a bag or go online at www.malibucompost.com and get some today. a great meal once in a while. Norm and I had a fantastic meal this past Friday at our version of a mafia hole in the wall called Casa Nostra. They cook with real stuff from the homeland. Of course, they use fresh local farm vegetables, but they bring in pasta and wheat flour from Italy. It's interesting that you can eat their pastas and breads and not have your stomach blow up the way you do from hybridized wheat grown in the U.S. Did you ever wonder if you're feeding your plants stuff that may have the same effect on them as if they'd eaten extra heavy on the gluten fast food Italian at the Olive Garden versus the pasta and bread from Casa Nostra and their heirloom wheat flour grown in Italy? I do. I wonder about things like that. So, what are you feeding your food, your fruits and veggies in your garden? Are you worried about not feeding your veggie garden the olive garden of fertilizers? I am. In fact, I worry about fertilizer and what poor gardeners are duped into using to grow their food at home all the time. But what do we really know about fertilizer? Let's go back and look at it from a historical perspective to see if we can avoid making mistakes today by looking at our history or see if maybe some of the things that we learned from history, what they used to do or how it used to be, might actually impact what we're doing today, which means it's probably not a good idea to ever try to cancel or erase history because we learn a lot of good and bad from history. To take it a step further, history was always one of my favorite subjects in school. We used to learn things in school that would open the doors, the doors of perception, or a brave new world that taught us things like the Orwellian thought from 1984 in Animal Farm. And they had historical perspective. That as communism and socialism spread, so did a healthy fear from the author about a scary dystopian society, much like the one that it feels like we're living in today, in a time and space where the government makes very arbitrary decisions based on limited truth and limited data to follow a narrative that they want us all to believe. But fact is fact and truth is truth. When people tell me that so-and-so is a Nazi... I can remember back to my 8th grade history 
and my 11th grade world history, and then the history that I took in college, as well as the many books I've read on history, and know that so-and-so is not a Nazi because I actually know what a Nazi is. Hopefully people will go back to history, actual history, not revisionist history, and learn the facts. In fact, I hope a lot of people out there on the streets who've never read an entire book, especially a book on history like Winston Churchill's History of the Second World War, will learn a little bit about, if they picked up that book, fascism, socialism, communism, and Nazism. It would probably be an eye-opener to a lot of people. So let's open our eyes to a little historical perspective on fertilizer. When it comes to modern farming and where their food is coming from, most people don't think about fertilizers and how they affect where their food comes from. Rarely do consumers question what types of fertilizer and how long farmers have been using them. They should because all the veggies at the regular supermarket or the fast food joint even the new meatless burgers that taste like meat, all of those things were grown with fertilizer. And most people don't even ever question that. I sure as heck do. Here's how farmers figure out how to fertilize in a nutshell. They use soil tests to determine nutrient levels and then convert those lab results into what they believe to be an accurate or reliable application rate that they've gotten from big fertilizer companies and big ag studies from big ag schools that get money from big fertilizer companies who are actually big chem or big chemical companies. And just like consumers, the farmers don't really question this because they are way more concerned with how much the fertilizer costs, how much they're going to need, and which is the best fertilizer for them to apply. They're busy And just like you and me, they're consumers, and they want Big Chem to make it easy for them and tell them what to buy and how much. This cycle of the modern conventional fertilizing cycle dates back to the last half of the 20th century, but it wasn't always this way. Up until not that long ago, it was believed that the concept of fertilizer use was dated back to about two to 3,000 years ago. But in a study done by a team of researchers led by Amy Bogard, an archaeobotanist from the University of Oxford that was looking for evidence of earlier fertilizer use, it is now believed that the early farmers were using manure to fertilize their crops as long as 8,000 years ago. In ancient times, manure would have been the most logical fertilizer to use. And due to the fact that manure has a higher than normal concentration of the rare nitrogen-15 isotope, N15, the team noted that recent research showed that plants treated with manure have more N15. The researchers collected ancient samples of cereals, such as wheat and barley, as well as pulses, such as peas and lentils, from 13 early farming sites across Europe that dated from 4,400 years ago to 7,900 years ago. They analyzed more than 2,500 individual cereal grains and pulse seeds from which it was concluded that the N15 levels were higher than normal and consistent with the use of manure for fertilizer. I'm sure you're wondering, how the heck did those farmers from thousands of years ago know that manure would be a good fertilizer and it would increase their yields? Well, 
The researchers realized that these early farmers saw that crops grew better in areas where dung accumulated naturally. In the places where animals gathered, these places of high crop fertility were obvious to the farmers as they witnessed the increased productivity on their small plots. The Oxford researchers concluded that cropping and herding, base farming protocols that were developed around the same time, were integral to the future of agriculture from the very start. In later civilizations, from the Babylonians to the Egyptians, the Romans, and then the early Germans, it has been recognized that all of them used minerals or manure to increase yields on their farms. The common thread and the growth of farming, agriculture, and civilization is that their predominant source of fertilizer for thousands and thousands of years was manure. Now let's flash to the last century and when I believe things went astray. And for that, we look at the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. In the 1920s and 30s, much of the soil of the Tennessee Valley region was tired, worn out, farmed, and flooded to the point of worthlessness. At the beginning of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson ordered the construction of two nitrate plants that would be powered by a hydraulic dam at Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The nitrates would be used to produce munitions for the war effort. Nitrates are an important element in the production of fertilizer. When the war was over, private interests eyed those plants with the idea of converting them to be peacetime manufacturers of fertilizer. Senator George Norris of Nebraska stepped forward to assert that Wilson Dam and the nitrate plants it powered could serve a larger public purpose. Norris argued that flooding and the lack of adequate power were problems for the Tennessee Valley, but their biggest problem by far was the extremely poor state of their soil. Back in the 1920s and 30s, much of the Tennessee Valley resembled a desert. When the TVA came into being, the Muscle Shoals nitrate plants were fired up again. They would be used to make fertilizer, but not for the mass market. They'd show private industry the way by demonstrating to the region and ultimately the nation the best methods of producing high-quality fertilizer, or so they thought. TVA director Hancourt Morgan, an old farmer himself, took charge of the project at nitrate plant number two, Two aged electric carbide furnaces were converted into phosphate smelters. The operation was dubbed the National Fertilizer Development Center. In 1934, they were churning out pumped-up phosphate fertilizers like triple superphosphate and calcium metaphosphate. Don't those sound great to have with like a breakfast drink? As the names implied, these new products had several times the potency of the stuff farmers had been buying by the ton. TVA distributed these super fertilizers through county soil conservation associations. Farms were chosen as test farms where the TVA products and processes could be tried out. The farmer of the selected land got the fertilizer for free. All he had to do was pay the freight cost. And the neighbors got to see the benefits of buying top grade fertilizer. The TVA got a chance to test its products on the ground. In the first 15 years of the fertilizer program, commercial sales of fertilizer in the Tennessee Valley increased three times faster than in the rest of the country. The results showed acre-for-acre acre farm productivity in the region reached levels never seen before. 
Forty years after the fertilizer program began, the farms of the once ruined Tennessee Valley were twice as productive per acre as the average American farm. As the U.S. entered the post-war era, the TVA fertilizer began being tested across the country in 35 different states. The new TVA chairman, Gordon Clapp, was convinced of the project's nationwide importance. He is quoted, The long-range benefits of the TVA fertilizer program are not confined to any single group or area. Rather, they accrue to producers, distributors, and users of fertilizer regardless of whether or not they handle a single sack of TVA fertilizer. By strengthening the productive enterprise of farming and those who serve it, the TVA program serves the entire nation. Over the years, TVA's work on fertilizer came into line with new national goals. By the 1970s, the TVA was finding innovative ways to make production of nitrogen fertilizer less polluting. Hmm... And that, my friends, is the problem. Chemical super fertilizers, even super duper fertilizers, were and still are toxic polluters. The old school once again is better than the new school. Manure served to grow agriculture and man on this planet for thousands of years. Chemical fertilization was already destroying the planet in less than 50. You see, it can be important to know your history. Retain your history. Study your history. It can't be canceled because it is. You can't cancel reality. That's insane. Imagine if the bozos who ran Big Chem decided to cancel the fact, the truth, the wonderful reality that ancient farmers and civilizations used manure to grow food. Imagine that they ripped that out of the books or had big tech remove that from the articles and papers on the history of agriculture. Imagine that they said it was bad, that it had too much biology in it, that microbes are bad. So no more using good, clean, natural composted manure because some illiterate fool, or worse, some dark, heartless, greedy corporation or corporations who control the political landscape and the soapboxers on the street said so. Imagine that. It's Norma, biological farmer and producer of the Healthy Garden podcast. Did you know that Malibu Compost website has a roadmap to how to grow food? Well, they do. If you go to malibucompost.com and scroll down to the bottom of their home page, you'll see the steps to growing in ground, the steps to growing in raised beds or pots, and the steps to growing fruit trees. All the dirty details are there at MalibuCompost.com.
I know for months I've been telling you to grow clean, safe, true organic, non-GMO, healthy food at home, and that it is now more important than ever. Well, I am going to quadruple down on that statement. It is so massively important. We have not yet come to the third quarter of the year, and I hope that I'm wrong, but I think that the financial outlook is bleak. The coronavirus outbreak that started in Wuhan, China, has destroyed the global economy. But the global economy just doesn't know it yet because of the handouts, the subsidies, and the paycheck protection programs that governments all over the globe have been dishing out to soften the blow of shutting down the entire economy as they put their citizenry under medical martial law. When the money runs out, the money runs out. And in my opinion, you better know how to grow food, collect water, have some seeds, some compost, some dirt somewhere to grow in, or you're going to be in trouble. I'd also say learning to can stuff and learning how to stay safe. And I'm not talking about putting on a mask. I'm talking about a survival skill and learning and having skills like being able to grow food that make you valuable in a time of economic collapse. That may just save your life or your family's life. And I don't want to I, I don't mean to sound like dun 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 dun, but I'm telling you guys, it's all too weird out there. And again, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that I am. Because none of what's going on out there makes any sense to me at all. So all right, we're gonna grow we're growing food. So what are we gonna feed it and how? We're going to feed our food by growing healthy soil. And what is healthy soil? Healthy soil is one that is full of biological or microbial diversity. That is how we feed the soil and grow the soil by adding diversity and letting the biology in your soil grow and come to your beds that are actually in the ground or in your raised beds naturally. If you're growing in containers, then you're going to have to play the part of nature and you're going to have to add the biology to help grow that soil. So what does a soil that has microbial diversity look like? It's one that has bacteria, which is primary to life on Earth. They are unicellular cells that are lacking a nucleus and there are billions of them in soil. Actinomycetes is a group of bacteria. They decompose complex mixtures of polymers and dead plants, animal and fungal material. They're the thing that give that earthy smell to soil. Then there's fungi, the long slender filaments that have adapted to create the pores of soil. They decompose things by releasing enzymes from their hyphal tips. Protozoa are unicellular organisms that decompose organic materials. They eat bacteria. They're important in the process of mineralization. And that's how, in nature, as we've discussed before in the program, plants get nutrients is when the biology, the microbes in the soil, the protozoa in the soil, break down organic matter and release nutrient for plant uptake. There's soil animals in healthy soil, nematodes. We've talked about adding nematodes into the soil, into your raised beds, and into soil mixes. 
Nematodes are microscopic roundworms, and they're, they eat larvae. Another type of soil animal is a microarthropod, and that's a, it's like a springtail. They decompose organic matter. You see them all the time in different compost piles. And then there's earthworms, and they help improve the aeration of the soil. How are we going to grow healthy soil? How are you going to grow healthy soil? The first thing you're going to do is hopefully at home you're composting. And we've talked about that. And hopefully you heard Norma's episode where she talks about how to make great compost. Super important to make compost at home. And if you're looking for a good compost, you then want to get a compost. If you have to augment or add to it, you want to get a compost that's true organic, non-GMO, finished, and that actually has all the major and minor nutrients in it and is loaded with biology. What you're going to do in your beds and in your raised beds, you're going to add a half an inch to an inch of compost at the beginning of every single growing cycle. So when you're in a new cycle, you're going to add that compost. So what's in compost? Good finished compost has nitrogen, ammonia, nitrate, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, sulfate, boron, and then other things like chloride, aluminum, sodium, arsenic, in healthy doses, natural doses, cadmium, chromium, cobalt, copper, iron, lead, manganese. All of these elements are necessary in our body and in our soil. You're then going to amend your beds as you need more compost. You're also going to occasionally want to amend your beds. And what I do when I amend them is I use things like a sixteenth of an inch of kelp or organic alfalfa or a little bit of mined basalt, rock dust, good worm castings that are real worm castings. Never use. What are the things I say never use? Bone meal, blood meal, feather meal, or cottonseed meal in your organic garden. Then you take your kelp meal, your alfalfa meal, your rock dust, and you cover with one sixteenth of an inch to an eighth of an inch of compost, and you water it in. You're going to start top dressing everything at a sixteenth of an inch to a quarter of an inch with your good finished compost every six weeks. If you're into mulch, go ahead and use your mulches, but use you can use green mulches that are living mulches, you can use organic straw, you can use leaves that you've that you've crushed or, or ground up, you can use grass clippings from your lawn if they're organic, you can use weeds, you can do cover crops. We've even done in certain areas of ours where we've got more acidic plants in there, we've used some of our pine needles that have been an incredibly good mulch that have created a great soil beneath the surface. Again, you also, the fifth thing I talk about is add the beneficial insects in the ground. Soil drench, your HB nematodes and your SC nematodes, they will hunt and kill the larvae of whitefly, thrips, leaf miner, aphids, and grubs. And the last thing you're going to do in making and creating good healthy soil is to continuously feed the soil with compost tea. We drench our beds all the time in our containers all the time, every three weeks after top dressing. A drench is equal to a normal watering. 
and it's also a great thing to use as a foliar spray on powdery mildew and rust. It can be effective on other fungal diseases as well, like botrytis and fusarium. And if you have to use and add soil to your beds, your containers, add a good, clean, true organic, non-GMO potting soil. So back to how do you maintain these beds? How do you maintain a healthy garden, healthy soil? How do you feed? You top dress. I'm constantly top dressing with home compost and other compost that we buy. That is mimicking nature. We are continuously, and I say I do that every five to six weeks, for me personally, sometimes I do it every four weeks. I go out there, I look at the garden, I look at the plants, I sense, do they need any of the nutrients that I talked about earlier? And then I just go ahead and I top dress. And I don't worry about it because I'm using a good, clean, finished compost. And then I use compost tea. I love compost tea extracts. I don't do too many aerations of compost tea because I don't really have the need for it. At the home garden, it's very easy just to go ahead and put out a couple uh, buckets, five-gallon buckets, and let them off-gas from the chlorine or the chloramine that you might have. Well, the chloramine won't off-gas, but the, but the humic acid will bind it from the compost tea. And make yourself a compost tea and just an extraction. And you let it sit overnight. You let it soak. And you go ahead then and use it as your drench. Put it in your watering cans and drench. Or if you've got your fruit trees, just use it in your bucket and drench it. And remember, a drenching is equal to a normal watering. And when you need to add soil, remember, just keep adding a good, clean, safe, true organic potting soil. And that's it. Become biological farmers and gardeners. Keep doing this over and over and over because if you feed that food, that food will feed you. That concludes this episode of the Healthy Garden Podcast. Please post your questions on the Healthy Garden Podcast pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week to learn more about how you can free yourself from the chemical and synthetic trap that's been set to keep you from growing a true, organic, and healthy garden. Until then, happy and healthy gardening.